The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On today's Court TV podcast, after nearly two weeks of jury selection, the guilt phase of the Derek Chauvin murder trial has begun with opening statements, giving us a clear picture of the strategies of the prosecution and defense. Court TV's Michael Ayala joins me to break down what we've learned. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. And we are in the middle of the big one. Minnesota versus Derek Chauvin, the man accused of murdering George Floyd. And this is a case that's taken on a life of its own. We know the impact that the death of George Floyd has had. Well, now it's time to figure out what it all means inside a courtroom as our system of justice uh, takes a look at it. And a jury of 12 people will decide whether or not Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. And um, Court TV, of course, giving you gavel-to-gavel coverage of this. So in this podcast, really want to take a deep dive into the opening statements because opening statements are really the roadmap for the entire trial. This is where the attorneys for both sides will lay out what they believe the evidence will show in the case. And uh, we got a few surprises during opening statements and, and got a feel and a flavor for who the attorneys are that will be trying this case and will be the voice Uh, for either side. So uh, with me is Court TV anchor Michael Ayala. Uh, Michael, and and, and I want to start off, we're going to focus here on on the prosecution, but before we get to that, I just want your overall take of both sides. The way I saw it was prosecutors came in, they were polished, they were professional, um, but not over the top in terms of passionate. Then the defense came in, and there wasn't quite as much polish, not, not so many bells and whistles, and even less passion. So what was your take of what you heard in those opening statements? I think, I think you, hit it, you hit the nail on the head there, Vinny. Um, I think the prosecution came in um, very, very prepared. They had a, a presentation, a PowerPoint presentation that was extremely well done, um, set out the timeline. It was very clear. Um, that they had uh, a sense of where the defense was going to go, and they ticked off all of the arguments they were going to make um, and made their own arguments, putting into the mind of jurors the arguments that they were going to make. I thought they did a great job of um, uh, what I call earworms, things like um, he did not let up, he did not get up, things like that that will stay in the jurors' minds as they continue throughout this case. Um, excessive force is assault. Um, things like that, that would give something the, uh, the jury can hang on to as the case continues. Um, and I thought the one word I would use for them is, is Jerry Blackwell was confident. He, he was confident, it appeared, in his, in his evidence and what he was going to show this jury. And I think that co- came across very well. And I agree with you on the defense side. Um, I thought there wasn't a lot of passion. But here's what I, I also thought, Vinny. I thought he struggled with the right tone. This is a difficult case because this is a, this is a death that caused a worldwide movement. The world is watching. Um, he knows that. So he couldn't be too overzealous in his approach, I think. But I think he also wanted to um, set forth the, uh, some arguments that I think he knew would be controversial. Um, and so he had to temper himself a little bit. And I thought he struggled with the right tone. But clearly, 
um, he, he was able to put forth the arguments he's going to make regarding cause of death and why, and we always talk, we've talked about this, why Derek Chauvin never got up off of George Floyd until the ambulance came. He, he put forth an argument for that as well, uh, blaming the bystanders. So again, it's a, it's a controversial argument, but that's where he's going. And I think he was clear of, of the direction he was going. Yeah, I, I was really shocked, though. I mean, if you think about the reaction to the death of George Floyd and the emotions it evoked and, and, and the passion and the arguments and the issues and, and what happened in this nation where, where people... Um, I mean, and there's people on on both sides of every argument and not specifically, okay, the death of George Floyd, but what that sparked and all the emotion that it sparked and these incredible uh, conversations and arguments that people are having online everywhere else. None of that made its way into the courtroom for this case, which may be purposeful and, and, and maybe for the defense, that's the best way to take the emotion out of it. Uh, I don't know. We'll see how, how it all goes. But I want to start here, and, and I want to give folks a flavor for what we heard. So Jerry Blackwell uh, is the one delivering the opening statement for prosecutors. Let's first talk a little bit about his background, Michael, because he's not a prosecutor. This is a guy, This is he's not a, he came in just for this case. He's doing it for free. He makes tons of money doing class action lawsuits in the civil world. Where, where, where it's, you know, Davy versus Goliath, you take on these big companies who've done wrong things, you represent, you know, hundreds or thousands of people inside a courtroom, it's very complicated litigation, but ultimately, uh, you've, you've got to convince those jurors. So I think he's very comfortable, which was obvious, inside a courtroom, but he's not a criminal guy. And, and I, I don't know, does, does, does criminal law evoke more emotion, or is that just me? Well, I think it absolutely does, and I think it, it. I think part of the issue too, Vinny, is you know they were they were stuck to that podium because of the COVID restrictions, and you know defense attorneys and prosecutors that you get emotional about these cases, and and part of that emotion is expressed in your movement, and you're moving around the courtroom, and you're pointing to various exhibits you may have and different things, and I think that adds to the emotion. I thought both attorneys looked a little uncomfortable have to, having to stay at the podium, so I thought that had something to do with it. Um, but I, I think as far as whether it's gonna affect him being a civil attorney and not a criminal attorney, I, I think, He's someone that I, I, I think the state wanted as a part of this case, because I believe he offered his services up um, because he's used to this complex litigation and these litigations that have a lot of things surrounding them. And he's comfortable in that environment. And let's not, you know, he's a black man. And I think having a black man deliver opening statements was in, important for optics as well. Um, and so I think on all those fronts, I think he fits the bill um, with his experience, his abilities. And I think that came through. All right, let's take a listen to a little bit uh, of Jerry Blackwell. And here um, you, you talked about themes that he had throughout. Well, one of the big themes uh, were the three numbers, nine, two, nine. He put his knees upon his neck and his back, grinding and crushing him until the very breath, no, ladies and gentlemen, until the very life were squeezed out of him. You will learn that he was well aware that Mr. Floyd was unarmed, that Mr. Floyd had not threatened anyone, that Mr. Floyd was in handcuffs. He was completely in the control of the police. He was defenseless. You will learn what happened 
in that nine minutes and 29 seconds, the most important numbers you were here in this trial are 929. What happened in those nine minutes and 29 seconds when Mr. Derek Chauvin was applying this excessive force to the body of Mr. George Floyd? All right, Michael, before we get to the 929, I couldn't help but notice that he mispronounces Chauvin's name through, throughout. And, and I'm wondering... I mean, because he's been in the courtroom, we've had, you know, several weeks of jury selection and Nelson has been saying Chauvin, 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 Chauvin. Do you think it's on purpose or do you just think uh, it's it's the way he sees it? And it, I mean, I mispronounce names all the time on the air, so I'm not criticizing for that. I'm just wondering if you think there's anything to it or it's just the way he pronounces it. I don't think there's anything to it. I'm, if, if you ask me that question, I have to ask myself, well, what does he have to gain by doing that? Not sure he has a lot to gain. Um, you know, again, it, the tenor of his delivery, uh, the way he delivered his his evidence, and what he's uh, or what he's going to present uh, ultimately to this jury, it was it, it seemed to me to reek of complete confidence. There would be no reason for him to mispronounce it for any other purpose. That would be, I think, amateurish on any level. Whatever he would. All right, about. all right. Let's. That uh, is just me. It's just me. Yeah, I'm just I think, thinking yeah, too yeah, much. I, I don't think. I don't think it was purposeful. That, that, that's the okay. short answer to your question. <laughs> the nine. The nine two nine is is great. Uh, you know, all along we heard eight minutes and forty six seconds, but I think that was based upon the the bystander video that went viral and someone put a label on it and it caught on, but. Prosecutors look at the actual evidence, the body cams and everything, and, and they are, have actually now extended the time uh, to, to what they see and have found in all the evidence to nine minutes and 29 seconds. And to me, that's the absolute foundation of the case and was a great theme because, you, you, you know, before then, I never heard that number. Now that number stuck in my head. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100 percent. I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, that's the center of the case, that nine minutes and 29 seconds. The idea that someone needed to be restrained in that manner for nine minutes and 29 seconds in and of itself is the essence of this case. And he wanted that to be brought across to this jury. And I think he did a fantastic job of it. Again, one of those little earworms I'm talking about, that 929. And, and I heard that across the board from people I spoke to about, you know, opening statements, people not related to Court TV, uh, social media. That 929 seemed to resonate. Yeah, could end up being another Bruce Springsteen song, I think, perhaps mm. down the road. Yeah. Could be, right? I mean, it's, it's that kind of number. Uh, and we're going to hear it. And we're going to remember it uh, from, from, for many years. Let's talk about this now. Um, the, the weakness of the prosecution case or the strength of the defense, either way you want to look at it, um, is cause of death, right? That's the issue that is most in question, I think, in, in, this, in this trial. And uh, Jerry Blackwell addressed that um, with some evidence that, uh, you know, this is, it's, it's, this is important because this is evidence that is um, something that, jurors can see something that you can understand and something I didn't necessarily expect something outside of the autopsy evidence talking about cause of death. So I think it's, it, it could be pretty significant. Let's take a listen. And once we have his final words, you'll see that for roughly 53 seconds, he is completely silent and virtually motionless with just sporadic movements. You're going to learn those sporadic movements matter greatly in this case, because what they reflect uh, Mr. Floyd was no longer breathing when he's making these uh, movements. You will learn about something in this case called an anoxic seizure. It is the body's automatic reflex when 
Breathing has stopped due to oxygen deprivation. We'll be able to point out to you when you'll see the involuntary movements from Mr. Floyd that are part of an anoxic seizure. Not only that, uh, you're going to learn about something that's called agonal breathing. When the heart has stopped, when blood is no longer coursing through the veins, you will hear the body gasp as an involuntary reflex. So this goes to, I think, a couple of things. You know, number one, he, he's dead, and Chauvin should know that, right, when he's on top of him and, and doesn't change course or attempt CPR or, or try to revive him, resuscitate him. But also just saying those words, oxygen deprivation, to me is pretty powerful in, in this case uh, because, you know, the three words, I can't breathe. And, and now you're talking about a physical manifestation of oxygen deprivation by George Floyd himself. Yeah, that it's, it's super important to the case. Um, one of the issues was that in the uh, original coroner's report uh, by Dr. Uh, Dr. Baker, uh, he did not say that there were signs. He said there weren't signs of this oxygen deprivation or this asphyxia that you normally see in the case of asphyxia. There were no bruises to the neck. So if they have testimony that can bring out, and when I listened to it, I was like, wow, you know, this, this is huge. I thought the same way you did. Um, and, and it's, and it's, and it, it's morbid and, and just appropriately so um, that this was the response to being deprived of oxygen, being deprived of air. This is how his body responded. And if they can get that in front of the jury such that they believe that, I think that is, is incredibly huge for their case. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address one final point on the opening statement which I, I thought was very thin, and that's intent. To get second-degree murder, you need intent, and the intent not of the intent to kill George Floyd, but the intent to assault him so you can convict him of Minnesota's second-degree murder, which is the equivalent of felony murder in most other states. So to me, he says, all right, now let's talk about intent, and then I was listening, and I didn't hear anything. I mean, did I miss something here, Michael? I didn't hear. Where's the intent going to come from? He said something about a, 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 what was it, a sandwich sign or something? I don't know. But to me, everything else was so precise. But when it got to intent, things got very vague. Yes. And um, he said it's going to be sprinkled throughout, which I thought was genius. Because, again, it's going to be very difficult to prove the intent. But one thing he did say, and you might have missed this, Vinny, he said excessive force is assault. That was a line he said. Excessive force is assault. So if he can get this jury to understand that what was going on there was excessive force, he is going to then tie that into the actual assault. That's where they're going with it. So throughout... That's smoke and mirrors. That's smoke and mirrors. That's not intent. That's a conclusion. That's like saying, you'll see murder and you will convict him of murder. Come on. You need the intent for the excessive force. Right. And, well, if, again, there was some argument. I don't know if you remember this. There was a motion that they were claiming they didn't have to prove intent in this case. Right. And part of the reason they were saying that is because if they can show excessive force, the excessive force itself then leads someone to know that that's an assault. So you don't have to prove the actual intent for assault it's as long as you can show excessive force. So they're going to have to make that argument and hope that this jury accepts it. And, and I think at the end of the day, they're, going, they're hoping, and I, here's what I, I think, and they didn't say this in their opening statement, that the video itself is going to provide the circumstances, what you're seeing, the posture, and all the different things, and the amount of time, and the fact that he didn't take his knee off after the movement stopped, they're going to try to suggest 
all of that, that's where it's sprinkled. It's sprinkled in his actions. And all you have to do is look at that tape to know that there was intent there based on the totality of the circumstances. Yeah, sprinkling throughout means it's 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 kind of thin. It's but we'll see. Thin. Yeah, there's I mean, no question. It, but you know what? You know what? In a case like this, with evidence like a video, you may not need. I mean, the jury may, you know, okay, yeah, we see it. Come on, come on. It's, it's just so obvious to me. And, and and many people have seen the video. I've said that. So maybe twelve people will agree to it. But technically speaking, uh, I, I you know I, I was waiting for it because everything else was so precise and laid out. But that wasn't. All right, when we come back, um, it is a trial. There are two sides to every trial. There are two different versions, two different ways to see the evidence, to understand the evidence. We'll tell you uh, what the defense said when we return. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. There are people behind them. There are people across the street. There are cars stopping, people yelling. There are there is a growing crowd and what officers perceive to be a threat. They're called names. You heard them this morning. A bomb. This was the most shocking part of the opening statement made by either the prosecution or defense in the, in, in the case. And this is Eric Nelson um, taking what I believe is the worst part of the case against his client, Derek Chauvin, and trying to turn it upside down in his favor. And what he's talking about are all the people who were watching what's happening to George Floyd, all the bystanders. That's what we call them, the bystanders. All these people who were, who were yelling and, and screaming at police, pleading for them to stop. That now is going to be used by the defense as the explanation and reason why they didn't stop or change course. Let me, let me explain it, okay? So what, what, the, what the argument is going to be from the defense is that the crowd was growing, growing larger and angrier, posed a threat, and this diverted the attention of Derek Chauvin from the subject, George Floyd. So in that time, as things are getting more and more intense on the ground from the crowd who is gathering and responding to what police are doing, police don't do anything because of what people are saying. It's almost like a circular argument, but, but it, it, this is what they are saying now. So the explanation, and I had no idea they were going to go here. I did not expect this. I didn't think of it. It may be brilliant. It may actually be the truth. That's what the trial is about. But nonetheless, it absolutely surprised me, blindsided me. Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor, still with me. What do you think? All right. It's interesting that jujitsu is sort of an issue in this trial because this is this is jujitsu by the defense, right? What are you doing? <laughs> what What are you doing jujitsu? Right? You take the other person's strength and their leverage, and you use it against them, right? And that's exactly what he did here. I think it was brilliant. I really do, because. What he's saying is that, you know, why was my guy on him for so long? Because the threat that existed around the area continually required control of the situation and control of George Floyd. 
And that's, to me, is brilliant. Now, one of the issues that sort of, I think that presents uh, for the defense is they were responding to something that the officers were doing, right? So it's, it's a questionable whether jurors are gonna be able to buy that approach because of what was going on and the way they were sort of you know, viewing what was going on. But at the end of the day, um, what I think the defense understands about these cases against police officers is that jurors are often loath to put themselves in the shoes of an officer and question their judgment at the scene. So if he can get them to believe that there was some threat that they perceived at the, at the scene, I think jurors are loath to say, no, that wasn't a threat. I'm gonna substitute my judgment for the way the cops felt at the scene. And if he can get that sort of mindset, that's where a lot of these cop cases are won. So how, how does the defense prove this, right? In, in the opening statement, you lay out what you believe the evidence will be. Um, obviously a perceived threat the officers could testify to that. The other three are not coming into the courtroom. Uh, they're waiting for their own trial. They're not going to say anything. It, does Chauvin have to testify? Does he rely upon the videos, or does he rely upon the cross-examination of some of the bystanders themselves who come into court to testify? As of right now, he's going to establish that through the bystanders at the scene. And that's already started. Um, he is going to use their testimony. And what he's going to focus on when they're on the stand is what they were doing, the actions they were taking. The people that we thought were going to be very strong for the prosecution, again, are going to be subject to that defensive jujitsu. He's going to take their testimony and turn it around and have them explain how they were trying to get to George Floyd. They were stepping off into the street towards where Derek Chauvin was and they were moving in that direction and Tutau had to push them back and, and threaten them with mace and all these things because they were so um, agitated and so, you know, now whatever reason they were agitated, that's a whole nother issue, but they were agitated. And as far as the cops know, they were a threat and he's going to elicit that testimony, bad language they were using, all the things that allow for police officers to determine this is a more heightened and dangerous situation. That's exactly what he's going to do. So he's going to establish his case through the prosecution witnesses. Wow. Uh, it, it, it's amazing because I, uh, you know, it, I try to, you know, in, in the buildup to all this, you know, what are they going to say? Where are they going to go? This never entered my mind. That's why I'm not a criminal defense attorney, number one. Uh, and number two, it's, it, it tells you a lot about Eric Nelson and, and the thought that's gone into all this. And it may be the truth. It may be what Derek Chauvin told him. Exactly. Derek, Cho Derek Chauvin could have said, listen, I, I'm, I'm there. All this is going on. These people, it's getting really intense. And, I, and I'm, I'm distracted. Yeah. I'm distracted because I'm wondering, is someone going to jump up behind me? Uh, well, here's the other thing, Vinny. The other thing that was mentioned in his opening statement was, now we, we've gotten used to seeing that one angle of the video that we've seen. And we have some body cam video, but that doesn't give us the full sort of 360. He's saying he's going to bring in some, some CCTV footage from a restaurant across the street that's going to give this jury a larger 360 view of what was happening around the police officers, which is going to give a clearer view of what they perceived was still a dangerous situation for that amount of time. So it'll be interesting to see what that shows, what was going on behind the officers, a lot of the stuff that we can't see from the angles that we're used to seeing. Uh, it, it's an amazing turn in all of this because all along I was thinking the bystanders are you, – you, how do you have a response to that? These people are looking at George Floyd dying. They know he's dying. Why don't the officers know? Well, that's going to be the explanation now.
All right, let's let's uh, uh, turn the page now to what I believe is the strength of the defense case. Right, this is the strength when it comes to cause of death, and the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, Doctor Baker, who works for the state, works for um, and, and is usually the expert for prosecutors in almost every criminal case, is like your own medical examiner. Uh, but Eric Nelson spoke about that in his opening statement, and again turned around or attempted to turn around that witness. Let's take a listen. And the state was not satisfied with Dr. Baker's work. And so they have contracted with numerous physicians to contradict Dr. Baker's findings. And this will ultimately be another significant battle in this trial. What was Mr. Floyd's actual cause of death? The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension his coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline throwing, flowing through his body, all of which acted to further compromise an already compromised heart. All right, so cause of death we know is their big issue because prosecutors have to prove it beyond any and all reasonable doubt for all three charges, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. So here they take it a step further saying, listen, the state wasn't even happy with their own experts, so they had to hire other experts. That hurts. That hurts prosecutors big time. Yeah, it hurts, and we knew it was coming. You know, we knew it was coming. We knew that, you know, when we looked at that report by Dr. Baker, it was built in reasonable doubt in there. Um, there's some suggestion that, you know, uh, county medical examiners, they function that way because they are a part of the state as the police are, as the prosecutors are. Um, and when you have to prosecute police officers, you can run into some of these these problems. Agencies that are normally working together are now sort of against one of their own. It becomes a little difficult. So there was a vagueness, I think, to the language in that ME's document, and they're taking advantage of it, and rightly so. That's what a, a good defense attorney will do. Um, but again, I was I was worried about this. But again, listening to the opening statement by prosecutors, I thought they have developed a fairly solid approach to this cause of death. But we'll have to see how it plays out in court. And the other thing that surprised me is Eric Nelson. Like this is like this is like your your big moment, and he just kind of goes through it like it's anything else. You you know what I mean? It was. I, I really thought he, he was going to punch it a little bit. It may not be his personality. Maybe jurors in Hennepin County don't like that, and he knows that because he practices there. I don't know. I'm just comparing it to, like, criminal defense attorneys that I practiced against in New Jersey or, you know, 80% of them, 90% of them that we watch every day on court TV. I mean, they have a, a, a fact like this, an issue like this. They are punching it big time. That's not Eric Nelson, so we'll, we'll see how it develops. How do you think Baker is going to testify? Do you think he's a little angry with prosecutors here? And, and these aren't the prosecutors he usually works with anyway, because this is the attorney general's office. These are a couple of private attorneys who are coming in. So uh, he has no, I don't think, any uh, relationship or allegiance to them. How do you think uh, uh, Baker testifies in, in this case? Well, I think, I think his language was a bit vague and a bit, bit broad, but I think he lands where the prosecution ultimately wants him to land, that the death was caused by this, 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 this hold or this, this, uh, you know, this, this pressing on the neck, uh, this neck hold by Derek Chauvin and the other officers. I think he lands there. Again, I don't think the language is particularly specific. 
in his Emmy report. I personally, I think that's on purpose. Um, but I think in his testimony, he will land there. But that cross-examination is going to be very, very interesting. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, and I'm going back in time here, right? Because uh, my, my short-term memory is not as good. But if, if he was a gymnast and you're talking about his landing, it might be like a Nadia Comaneci would be a 10. He's no Nadia Comaneci in the way he's uh, uh, landing here because he's kind of a little bit, a little bit of a stumble, but, but does remain standing up, right? Yes, absolutely. All right. So um, overall, what was what? All right. So the, the opening statements are done and you take a moment to reflect. And, and, and what are you thinking? What, what, what are you thinking, Michael? What, what's your overall like, wow, we, we just saw the opening statements in the, the biggest case in, in quite a long time, uh, a trial that certainly the world is watching and, and a case that has big ramifications. What was your overall takeaway uh, as they were completed? Um, I thought, you know, just to put it in its simplest terms, the prosecution won opening statements. I thought they did a fantastic job. So there was a win there. But I also came away still with the same feeling I, I started with, that this is not an easy case. There are a lot of places where the defense has some strong arguments, has a lot to work with. And hearing that sort of jujitsu that we talked about, where he's going to be using the bystanders against the prosecution and how he did I always wondered how is it being how is he going to explain how long Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck now that I have an understanding of where he's going I'm still in that camp that says this is not an easy case yeah I think we're in we're in agreement on this one this week Michael Ayala no I thought, uh, yeah I thought, I thought prosecutors won but uh, I still don't think it's going to be super easy all right Michael Ayala court TV anchor Super busy guy. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we will talk again. Of course, Vinny. Always, always at your service. All right. When we come back, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice, folks, for those of you watching the trial. And maybe you've watched some trials before. Maybe this is the first time that you are, are, are really into a case, so you're going to watch what happens. Well, I'm going to get you prepared, give you a little advice on, on what to expect, how to watch it, and, and, and maybe why you shouldn't get so angry all the time. That's next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. Trials are unpredictable. That's the first thing you have to know when you're watching a trial is you don't know what's going to happen. Even though both sides have a pretty good idea what the evidence is, things happen during a trial that you don't expect to happen, and things can take a turn, they can take a twist, and you can have a result that you never, ever expected. Um, I used to work with uh, uh, an anchor named Ricky Kleeman. She was an amazing, absolutely amazing, legendary attorney in Massachusetts, then went to Court TV for many, many years. Um, and she, she always said, trials are living, breathing things. They take on a life of their own. And it's so true. It is so true because as, as many trials as I've covered and watched through the years, Every time I sit down for one, I am I am surprised, and something happens that I've never seen happen before. 
And, it, and it's going to happen here in the trial against Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Um, so the first bit of advice I'd give you is don't ever think you know what is coming next or what is going to happen because nobody knows, all right? Trials are also adversarial, okay? Each side is fighting to win, and each side has their own ethical obligations that they have to uh, perform under, okay? So for, for prosecutors, which I am a former prosecutor, it's all about uh, justice and the truth, okay? A prosecutor can't go into a case saying, I want to convict this person. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not about convicting the person. It's about getting the truth in front of the jury, which will lead to a conviction. Because your job is not to convict people that you don't believe you have the evidence against. It's not to convict people you think, well, they're just bad people. They did something, so I'll get them on, on this. No, you have to believe and have the evidence and believe you have the evidence to prove the case and that they are the one responsible. And, and if, if in the middle of the case something happens and it's revealed to you that, oh, oh my goodness, this person did not do it, you got to stop. You got to stop. You take one step further towards that prosecution, uh, you should be disbarred. You should be prosecuted. So their job is the truth and, and, and seeking justice, which is the truth, okay? So that you can't just prosecute anyone. It, 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 that's, why, that's why when you have cases that are um, grounded in politics, that's when things get very dangerous for some prosecutors. You ever hear the term like political prosecution? Uh, it's just a political pro. That, that's a problem. If you're targeting someone or you're going after someone other than for the reason of someone committed a crime, I have the evidence, I can prove it. Now, the ethical obligations of a defense attorney have nothing to do with the truth. Nothing to do with the truth. It has to do with the interests of their client. They have to do anything and everything within the rules of, of, of the court to protect the interests of their client. And when you're in a criminal trial, it's about raising a reasonable doubt. Their concern has nothing to do with the truth. Now, the truth may be that their client is innocent, so it may be, while, while, while representing the interests of their client, they are looking to bring the truth out in court, but sometimes they're representing people who are guilty, and, and But they still have the same obligation to their client, regardless of what the truth is. It's a big, big difference and a big distinction. And that's why they will say and do things that sometimes you scratch your heads and say, why is he doing that? He knows that's not true or, or that's not what that means. And people take it very personally. Well, and sometimes I do. I'll admit it. Sometimes I, I take it kind of personally when I see a, a defense attorney doing or saying something that... I perceive in the moment as being outrageous. But then I've got to take a step back and say, this is the way our system works. If we did not have an adversarial system, if we did not have someone whose sole ethical obligation was to protect the interests of the accused, our system would fall apart. It wouldn't work. We would no longer get the truth. We would no longer get justice. We would get injustice because we would have one side making all the decisions about, oh, who did what? And, and prosecutors would, would be the judge and jury, which they're not. And if you had defense attorneys who just laid over and didn't try as hard if their client was actually guilty, the entire system crumbles and falls apart. 
So as you sit there and watch this trial and are screaming at the television, whether you're screaming at the prosecutor for what they're doing based upon what you believe or the defense attorney, understand that they are doing their jobs, their ethical jobs. And if they don't do it, number one, they get in trouble. Number two, our system gets in trouble. So while you may feel some level of frustration at arguments that are made in the courtroom, it's part of the process. Don't take it quite as personally as you may. And don't feel like it's the system that is doing it. It's it's the only way the system exists is if there are two sides who are not agreeing inside a courtroom. That's why we have a jury that comes in to make the decision. Okay, prosecutors don't make the decision. The defense attorneys don't make the decision. They make arguments. They present evidence. It's the jury who makes the decision. And you've, if you watch Court TV, we cover jury selection here, so you understand the process that they have to go through um, to make it onto the jury. It's not just the first 12 people in the room. It's 12 people who the judge believes can be fair and impartial after both sides have eliminated jurors uh, that they believe couldn't be fair and impartial to their side, even though the judge does. Okay? So I hope that helps you a little bit because there will be a level of frustration, especially in an emotional case like this. But please take away from this. We have the best system of justice in the world, and if it didn't work this way, it wouldn't work at all. Now, to watch the trial, make sure you're watching on Court TV. Um, if you have a digital antenna and you're trying to find Court TV and you can't find us, please re-scan that digital antenna and you will find your front row seat to justice. Um, also, check out the show notes. We have uh, great uh, links and, and to clips and parts of the trial that we're, we're talking about here and, and other parts of the case as well. Uh, important stuff uh, that you can catch up on if you need to. I'm Vinny Politan. We'll be doing this every week. We do it every week, the Court TV podcast. And, and of course, we'll be taking you a, a level deeper into our analysis of the case against Derek Chauvin, the man accused of murdering George Floyd. I'm Vinny Politan. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.